Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Murder. Murder. Welcome to Death Do Us Part podcast, hosted by my wife, Jamie. Hello. And myself, Mark. What up, y'all? Hi. Hi. It's been like two days. Two days. But I, I got into this rabbit hole, and I couldn't not. Like, we had to do it today. And you didn't even want to do this case. I didn't. You need to put your sunglasses on. You're freaking me out. Oh, um, God. Here we go. So not only did I go down a rabbit hole and, like, have to do this today because Mark is tired of listening to me talk about it. Yes. Um, You're so, telling me, like, bits and pieces. Right. And... So I need to tell you guys. Um, but it's going to be a two-parter. Wow. Yeah. I did not think that when... Mm-mm. I brought up the case. I didn't either. Thought it was going to be pretty cut and dry, and it's uh, not even fucking close to that. That's crazy. Yeah, it is. So, I mean, with the bits and pieces that you've been telling me, I'm actually very interested in hearing it all. I have so. some um, historical data for you. Okay. Um, a couple things I. I guess I've always wanted to know, but didn't really bother to look up that I looked up. Now I know. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah. Ooh. So. So what else is going on? Uh, nothing. That's It's been Timothy McVeigh for like three days. Mm. So. Today was a busy day of doctors. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I'm breathing heavy into the microphone. I, I do too. Like, yeah. that's why I asked last time. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm... If I get too close, uh, yeah, you're like, stop getting so close. Uh, but, uh, whatever. I don't, I don't know. know. We got new Patreons. Ooh. We do. Why don't you uh, read them off? We got Lisa. Lisa, thank Ryan, you. Ryan. Ryan, thank you. Megan. Megan, thank you. Brandy. Brandy, thank you. You guys are... The tits. Yes, you are. Mm-hmm. Welcome so, to the family. Yes. Yes. So tonight, as soon as we're done doing this, I'm going to add two new tiers to the Patreon. This is the best way I figured out how to do it. Mm-hmm. We're going to add a $3 tier and a $15 tier. Yeah. The $3 tier and the $5 tier will be the exact same thing. So if those of you at $5 want to go down to 3 all you got to do is go in and hit switch tier. Mm-hmm. The $15 tier and the $20 tier, same thing, going to be the exact same thing. So if you're at the $20 tier and you want to bump down to 15 all you got to do is hit switch tier. Boom. So I'll leave all of the tiers up for a while just because it's the easiest way to do it. Yeah. So, but I'm, I am going to add those extra two in there. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. If you were um, not one of the people that would... Uh, prefer to state what you're at i will go through all the patreons and figure out who you are Mm -hmm. and we'll reimburse you the difference between the cost of the tiers if you change cool so good deal that'll be tonight 
Awesome. Yeah. That's all so, I got. I'm not exciting. No, I'm so I, I hope that helps out. Yeah. And I hope this is more cost <clears throat> efficient and I hope more people join. Yeah. And I'm sorry it took I love so you long. guys. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to figure out a way to like it's just I don't know. I'm computer stupid. No, I know. So, and Patreon is not very I just I don't think that either. there's a way to do it. Yeah. So this is the only way I could think of to do it. Yeah. No, I agree. So, so that's cool. That that gives options then to everybody. No. Oh, you should keep talking and let me text Jax that we're recording. Oh, you didn't tell him? No. I don't know what to keep talking about. It's very awkward Just now. Stuff. It's awkward now though. I'll try to keep talking with you. No, though. you won't. So our last episode Mm-hmm. Mark wasn't very interactive. I thought he was. He thinks he wasn't. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think I was. I, and you I were apologize. Fine. Yeah, I thought you were fine. But I don't know. You didn't seem to think so. No. So, um, so we do know Saturday. Well, part two is going to be tomorrow of Timothy McVeigh. Yeah. Part two is going to be tomorrow. Yeah. Oh wait, it might have to be Thursday. What? Because I'm working tomorrow night to be off Thursday morning. Oh yeah, you're right. So it'll be tomorrow or Thursday. Thursday at the very, very latest. Okay. Um, and then Saturday we're doing Tony's case. Yes, we are. And then we figured out our next Patreon mm-hmm. is a Patreon request. We're yes. going to do the Golden State Killer. Very cool. So we that's got my a plan. Mm-hmm. We got a plan. Mm-hmm. Got a plan, Stan. We do. Very cool. So <sighs> what do we got today? Babe, I. Mm, it's a goodie. <laughs> it's um. I don't even know. I, like I don't even know how to explain it. And I I don't even know what like sparked my interest, but I just I I don't know. I was just kind of thinking like eh, yeah. we didn't we've never done Timothy McVeigh, so why don't we? You, you know, there weren't a lot of other podcasts on him. Really? Or the actual, like, Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah. No, there wasn't a lot. Yeah, I just, I haven't heard a lot about it, so I figured, well, why don't we try to dig into it? And I always want to know, like, a why. I always feel like if there's a why and an answer to the why, things are easier to understand and or explain. Yeah. Man, the fucking why? Holy shit. That bad, huh? Babe... I thought the why was going to be like that eh, because he's fucking crazy. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> no. Uh-uh. He knows exactly um, what he's doing. I don't think he is crazy at all. Oh, really? Or was, excuse me. Um, I think he had PTSD. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think he had PTSD. I, I don't think he was, I don't think he was crazy. Mm. I think he had his beliefs and... Yeah. That's what and they stuck were. By them. Yep. And it just kind of radicalized over time. Interesting. So. Oh, that's interesting. I don't fucking know. Like, it's. I I went from like a one person to like 27. <clears throat> so I'm going to try and make this <laughs> as not confusing as possible. Right. But there there is 100% a backstory to his story. Okay. 
Very, very, very much so. So, I don't know. All right. I'll try. Give it a shot. Okay. So, we're doing Timothy McVeigh. Uh, Timothy McVeigh would say, quote, I like the phrase, shot heard around the world, and I don't think there's any doubt the Oklahoma City blast was heard around the world. Now. Flip the page. So, the phrase, the shot heard around the world, originated from a poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson about the Battle of Lexington and Concord. It refers to the opening shot that started the Battle of Lexington and Concord. This battle began, it really started the American Revolutionary War and led to the creation of the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Do you want to know what day it was? April 19th, 1775. Okay. April 19th. April 19th. In April 1995, terrorists and bombings had very little effect on the daily lives of Americans. That kind of thing didn't happen here, only in faraway countries that we hear about on the news. On the morning of April 19th, 1995, the attack that was on the news was here. At 9.02 a.m., a rider truck parked in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City, containing a bomb equivalent to 5,000 pounds of TNT. Holy shit. Exploded. One-third of the nine-story building was completely demolished. In all, 168 people, including 19 children, would die, and over 600 were injured. This became the deadliest and costliest act of terrorism in the U.S. at the time, only being surpassed by September 11th. Wow. It, however, remains the deadliest act of domestic terrorism in American history. Wow. Timothy McVeigh a decorated Gulf War veteran, proudly took credit, stating, quote, based on observations of the policies of my own government, I viewed this action as an acceptable option. Did one man do this in the hopes of inspiring a revolution against the federal government? Or was he a patsy for a right-wing militia group taking full responsibility? Ooh. All right. Dun-dun-dun. Damn. I'm very proud of that. Just saying. The, yeah, that was good. <laughs> okay. Bear with me. You ready? Mm-hmm. All right. So in order to attempt to understand the thoughts and actions of Timothy McVeigh, you have to start way back. Why April 19th? Why a federal building? What is the Turner Diaries? And who in the hell is John Doe number two? Ooh. John Doe number two. Did I intrigue you? Yeah. Yeah. John Doe number two. Okay. Okay. You're staring at me weird. Yeah. So. I can feel it. There was a second person? There was possibly multiple people. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Continue. All right. In 1971, in Pontiac, Missouri, the Zerafath... Harib Community Church was founded. I apologize if I'm saying that wrong. It was founded by James Ellison and was developed from a Baptist congregation. It soon evolved into an extremist paramilitary organization that was renamed the Covenant, the Sword, and the Arm of the Lord. Amen. It's either CSA or CSAL. 
So, yeah, right? Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, oh, trigger warning. Um, whole lot of fucking racism. Oh, really? Oh, whole, whole lot of fucking racism. Really? So, I would, I, I want to say the terms I, I won't use, obviously. Right. Um, but some of the wording and some of the things that were said is not mine. Okay. It's from research. It's from books. It's it's not mine. Really, racism. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, baby. Really? You're, oh, you're in for it. Holy shit! So, all right. Uh, this far right militant organization was dedicated to Christian identity and survivalism. Christian identity is a movement, essentially. So are the are. Are these like the Aryan Brotherhood? It's, no. But there's ties. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Christian identity, this is where it starts. This is a, a religion. It's considered a religion. Uh, it's an interpretation of Christianity, which advocates the belief that whites of European descent are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore can be traced back to the last tribe of Israel. Hmm. Here's where it gets a little racist. Sorry. Um, Jews are the satanic offspring of Eve and the serpent. And non-whites that they referred to as, quote, mud people were created before Jesus. Adam and Eve. Yeah. Um, so That's <laughs> fucking terrible. Yeah. Oh, it gets worse. Um, it, their beliefs are really based like before Adam and Eve and after Adam and Eve. Okay. So they call themselves um, Adamic people for Adam. Mm. Yeah. So this promotes the idea that all non-whites will either be exterminated or enslaved in order to serve the white race in the new heavenly kingdom on earth under the reign of Jesus Christ. This is how Edemic people achieve salvation and enter paradise. Not crazy at all. No. Um, There's no structure, no leader, and no physical church. The whole idea behind the no leader is there's nobody to overthrow. So as long as you have the same beliefs, you're part of the club. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Along with the staunch racism, uh, most members have a strong anti-government sentiment. Mm -hmm. The group operated a large compound in Arkansas called, quote, The Farm. The CSA declared war on the U.S. government in 1983, starting after, or excuse, excuse me, starting with, a failed arson attempt on the Springfield Metropolitan Community Church. It also started with the um, killing of, I forgot his fucking name, because I didn't put him in here at first. Excuse me. They, um, the government went to arrest him for not paying taxes, and they ended up getting into a shootout and killing him. So he was like their martyr, but they leave out the part that he kills a police officer and two marshals. Uh, that sounds familiar, but I can't yeah. think of a name. Gleason, maybe? Something with a G, but it was an 83. Uh, I wish you put the, that in there. Oh, I can put it in part two. I'll find it. Okay. Yeah. Um. So in 1984, high-ranking CSA member Richard Rain- Wayne Snell was convicted of killing an African-American police officer and a financial advisor or gun shop owner or pawn shop owner. I read three different things. Um, that he mistook for being Jewish. Okay. So this 
and multiple crimes behind it caused the FBI to start further investigating the organization and looking for ways to infiltrate the compound. This became known as Operation Clean Sweep. On April 16, 1985, the FBI obtained a search warrant for the compound for weapons charges and violations. On April 19, 1985, the FBI raided the farm. Uh, The FBI and James Ellison were willing to come to a peaceful surrender, but Ellison wanted his spiritual advisor, Robert G. Millar, to come help him. Yeah. So Millar was actually flown in from another state. And U.S. Attorney Asia Hutchinson negotiated a peaceful conclusion from inside the compound. Mm. Yeah. Uh, After Ellison and his leaders were charged in federal court with illegal weapons charges and racketeering, the FBI says that this was, and still remains, the largest stockpile of weapons that they have seized. I don't know why I don't remember this. Uh, Was it really publicized? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Because this group, so the CSA, it was it was really just from like 83 to 84. And maybe be, because it ended peacefully, so... Yeah, I mean, it was, it was long, but it was peaceful. Yeah, so maybe that's why the yeah. news didn't really pick up on it. So now, there's, there's so much more I could put in, but I didn't want to confuse you. So, I'm not being a dick. Okay. I didn't want to confuse you. Yeah. Um, so, Robert Millar was his spiritual advisor. He was the founder of Elohim City. Okay? Mm -hmm. It's a private community in Adair County, Oklahoma. Robert Millar was a very important leader in Christian identity. He created this community after coming to uh, Oklahoma with 18 people that were related to him by blood or marriage in the early 70s. Mm. Uh, and it grew to only like less than 100 people. So like everybody's banging everybody. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. So it was a spiritual community to quote, honor God while waiting for him to establish his kingdom on earth. Now, many from white supremacist groups, such as the Order, stayed in Elaham City. Because okay. it was a home away from home, essentially. Yeah. Um, Many of these groups participated in criminal activity, um, including bank robberies, 22 bank robberies. Oh, my God. That Millar just turned a blind eye to. Hey, well, yeah, you know. Yeah. Eh, um, whatever. So, Elaham City is actually the burial site of Richard Wayne Snell. Mm. Do you remember? Yeah. Okay. So, this fucking guy, all I think of is Snell, like the Snells. Uh, yeah. That's all I think of. Yep. So, um, Snell, in 1983, plotted to bomb the Alfred P. Murrah building in Oklahoma City with a rocket launcher. Whoa. Placed in a, quote, van or trailer in front of the federal building. Oh. Uh, Snell was pissed at the IRS for raiding his home, and this is why he chose that particular building. Pay your taxes, motherfucker. Now... In the 80s, I don't know if the IRS was in that building, but in the 90s, they were not. Okay. So, um, however, while building the rocket launcher, it exploded in his hands. <laughs> building the rocket launcher. They were building it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. He took this as a sign from God that it was, um, that he shouldn't go through with it at this time. Yeah. 
Good sign. Or that you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> right. I mean, let's just go with that. Who builds a fucking rocket? Well, not him, because he couldn't even fucking do it. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, he Dinner's was... Dinner's ready. Uh, I'm building rocket. Hold Dude, on. How do you even... <laughs> like, what do you even start with? I don't... I don't know. What do you start with? Because a rocket launcher doesn't actually launch rockets. It's like missiles and bombs. So, like, what, where do you start? I'm building a missile. I don't know where to start. I don't know either. Yeah. So, um, he was charged and sentenced to death for the murder of Arkansas State Police Trooper Lewis Bryant, who he killed during a traffic stop with a modified Colt 45. I couldn't find any real information about the traffic stop. So I don't know if um, like he just pulled out the gun and started shooting. Um, I do know he was caught uh, pretty quickly in a standoff with the police and was ended up shot six to eight times. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Side note, though, and I felt like I had to include this in there. Mm -hmm. um, Four members of the DeQueen, Arkansas Police Department were killed in a car accident on the way to oh the state troopers God. yeah that's fucking terrible yeah isn't that all oh four my of them God. Mm-hmm. yeah wow so but it's it's thought that he he shot this officer because he was black that was the only reason sorry the can just made a huge oh, noise and so and richard like, snell was sentenced to death right yeah his execution was scheduled for April 19th, 1995. Creepy. Yeah. Creepy. In the days prior to his execution, Snell would tell anyone who would listen that there was going to be a bombing the day of his execution. Ten days prior to the execution, he told the jailer that there was going to be hell to pay. Former KKK member Louis Beam, who was co-conspirator in the 1983 bombing plan and close friend of Snell, wrote a letter to Snell's wife, three weeks before the execution. He said, quote, Armageddon is coming the day of his death. Mm. He also told an unnamed friend that something big was going to happen on the two-year anniversary of Waco. Ooh. And it was going to be in Oklahoma City, Denver, or Dallas. Mm-hmm. He said that he didn't know exactly what or who, but it was, quote, close to what Earl Turner pulled off in the Turner Diaries. And that, quote, they have some kid who's going to do something, and whatever it is, I'm sure it's going to make a splash. Ooh. So people knew. Yeah. That's what was sealed, essentially. That's fucked up. Was that people knew. Yeah, that's fucked up. That's yeah. not good. So the morning of April 19th, 1995, Richard Snell's only request was to watch the news. While watching the coverage of the bombing, because he knew it was going to happen, Guard said that he was smiling and laughing to himself. He was executed hours later. Ooh. Man. So the Turner Diaries. Yeah. This is a huge part in Timothy McVeigh's story. Okay. So this is a 1978 novel written by William Luther Pierce, Pierce excuse me, but published under the pseudonym Andrew McDonald. It depicts a violent revolution in the United States, which leads to an overthrow of the federal government, a nuclear war, and ultimately a race war, which leads to the systemic extermination of non-whites. 
It includes the bombing of FBI headquarters using a truck containing a bomb parked in front of the building. Yeah. Uh, it was described by the New York Times as being, quote, explicitly racist and anti-Semitic and was labeled, quote, the Bible of the racist right by the FBI. It was greatly influential in shaping white nationalism and the later development of the white genocide conspiracy theory. Uh, it's also said to have inspired numerous hate crimes and acts of terrorism, including the Oklahoma City bombing and the 1999 London nail bombings. Do you remember those? I remember those. Yeah, I do remember those. It was those. like in the subway or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, just a, a little factoid for you. 94% of all domestic extremist murders are linked to right-wing ideologies. Ooh, I so, can believe that. So, April 19th. April 19th. Columbine was scheduled for April 19th, but they didn't get the ammunition in time. Ooh. So it was April 20th. Yeah. April 20th is Hitler's birthday. Ooh. But April 19th. Man. So I went back and I looked in my research. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they were, they did like reference Waco in their tapes. Did they really? In their basement tapes. They did reference Waco and that's why it was supposed to be on the 19th, but... The guy who was supposed to buy the ammo didn't get it in time. Damn. April 19th. All right. Timothy James McVeigh was born on April 23rd, 1968 in Lockport, New York, to Irish Catholic parents Mildred Noreen, Noreen sorry, and William McVeigh. He was the only son and the second of three kids, having an older sister, Patty, and a younger sister, Jennifer. Tim and the younger Jennifer were very close, and she would later become his most vigorous defender. Uh, Mom was a travel agent, and Dad worked at Harrison Factory, which was um, a factory that provided uh, radiators to General Motors. Okay. He was second generation. Yeah. Um, His parents would end up obtaining a legal separation in 1979, um, but they, they didn't get divorced until he was in high school. They were back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. Um, the girls went with their mom, and Tim stayed with dad, saying he didn't want him to be alone. He would say multiple times later on that the separation didn't really affect him, and he didn't really have a relationship with either one of his parents. Yeah. Saying, quote, I struggle with the question, do I love my parents? I have very few memories of my childhood, of interaction with my parents. I can't blame them for anything that's happened to me. I was often by myself or with neighbors. Most of my memories focus on that. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't feel bad for no, you. No, no, no. I'm just saying. Um, so Tim would say that he was bullied during childhood and would fantasize about retaliation. Um, he wasn't like relentlessly bullied. Like, there. so there's a biography about him. And they only mention one instance where he was in seventh grade and two high school kids tried to give him a swirly that's it like that's it bro that's nothing and they call them noodle mcveigh because he was skinny that's nothing no i dude i was fucking tortured when i was a kid i fucking bully you more than yeah (laughs) yeah so i i don't feel bad yeah so most remember tim as shy and withdrawn but there are a few people that would describe him as an outgoing playful child with a huge imagination uh, who really didn't become withdrawn until adolescence. So 
let me just say, he never blamed anything on his parents' divorce or being bullied. Mm-hmm. Just, it was there. Okay. So, uh, Tim said he was fond of his family, but expressions of love eluded him. There was one person, however, that Tim would actually say out loud that he loved, and that was his paternal grandfather, Ed McVeigh. Uh, Ed matched Tim's love with love only a grandparent can offer. He seemed like such a like a sweet, sweet man yeah. who was devastated. Like, So their relationship revolved around a common interest and enjoyment of guns when Tim got older. Um, Ed thought that you taught by setting an example. So he taught him gun safety and where to point it, where not to point it, how yeah. to load it, all that stuff. So yeah. um, Ed always wanted Tim to consider the safety of others, whether it pit- pertained to firing a gun, dropping rocks in water, or picking up trash. Ed would also teach him all the aspects of domestic life, from fixing stuff to doing dishes. Tim had been blessed with a high IQ and knew how to get along with teachers and stay out of trouble in class. Mm -hmm. But after a couple of run-ins with older kids, because there was only like two, Mm. uh, his grades started to slip in middle school. Yeah. He was fascinated with comic books at an early age, but moving towards science fiction as he got older. He, like, became obsessed with Star Trek. Right? Nanu, Nanu. Is it Star Trek with Klingons? Oh, babe. I don't, I don't. Do I fucking watch that shit? <laughs> as he got older. <clears throat> by the way, the names of these fucking high schools, Who a 13-year-old girl came up with them. Well, Just saying. Yeah. So he went to Starpoint Central High School. Yeah. Um, and he would eventually date a girl who went to Sweet Home High School. So yeah. Oh yeah. A thirteen-year-old girl. Named yeah, me. definitely. Uh huh. Um. So when he started high school, he was kind of coming into his own and was becoming a little more self-confident. Um. And he would start standing up to the bullies, uh, responding to them calling him Noodle McVeigh with him yelling, "Go fuck yourself." So yeah. Uh, Tim's parents right separated, on. yeah, for the last time in 1985, mm. finalizing their divorce mm. just before graduation. Um, Mom stayed with mm. the girls in Lockport, New York. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because Dad bought a trailer. Um, Tim moved to Pendleton with his dad. Mm-hmm. Tim was working at Burger King at the time and spent all his time there or locked in his bedroom that he turned into a makeshift computer lab. Nerd alert. I don't mean to be a dick, but it's 1985. Like, were home computers a thing? Uh, I know the internet wasn't, but like... I mean, yeah, I don't know. Was even was Atari even a thing know. then? I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. But he owned two Commodore 64 computers, which were huge at the time, um, and became known as, quote, the I Wanderer. Know what that is. I know. Uh, became known as the Wanderer among his cyber friends. Cyber friends? Yeah. yeah. How many people had fucking computers back I, then? Babe, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> so he, his senior year, uh, he was named most promising computer programmer. Well, yeah, if, if he's the only one that's got a fucking computer. Yeah. Um, he was also given the title of most talkative because uh, they were dicks and they thought they were funny, which mm. I also think is funny. Yeah. Um, he ended up hacking into schools, like with these computers, and defense department computers. Well, I'm sure like the passwords, uh, you know, or like the firewalls on it's like these boob. computers. Yeah. 
One, two, or, three, four. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which, by the way, I looked at Reddit today, and the first name I saw was Boobies and Blow. <laughs> I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. That's going to be my password for uh, Boobies oh, and Blow. damn right. So, Tim um, <clears throat> did not have a way with the ladies. No. No. Well, he was Nerd. noodle. Um, so, however... In the winter of 1985, he started sleeping with an older married coworker. Whoa. She was 10 years his senior and was basically like, we're just going to fuck. Cool. All right. And he was like, I'm down for that. I'm, yeah. I'm okay with that. So when that fizzled out, he started dating a girl his age from Sweet Home High School, um, who he was very close with her. He ended up becoming very close with her family. Um, mom, her mother treated him like a son. Bought him a red shirt to wear for graduation. Mm-hmm. It's no significance. Just put it in there. Uh, he graduated in 1986. And shortly after that, he abruptly broke up with his girlfriend saying, quote, I'm not ready to get serious. I need my computers. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, too, for the longest time. I thought he was like our age. But that wouldn't make sense. Mm, no. Yeah. I don't know why. So the summer after graduation, Tim quit his job, sold his computers, and spent all the money on his car. What his dad Bill saw as a funk, Tim saw as a period of deep reflection. He was starting to think about his place in the world. He knew that he loved guns, the outdoors, and exploring in his car. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So his guiding principle at that point became freedom, really. Um, he also began researching the Second Amendment and rights of firearm firearm owners. He he was really into shooting with his grandfather, did target practice, all that good shit. So um, then he started thinking back to the blizzard of 1977, which everybody got stuck somewhere. That was um, part of the demise of his parents' marriage. His mom got stuck in a hotel room with multiple coworkers, and there was rumors that she slept with somebody. So he decided that he was going to become a survivalist. Whether a huge weather disaster or a nuclear war, he wanted to be ready. Um, His dad was like, cool, uh, but in the meantime, get off my fucking couch and go get a job or something. (laughs) So he convinced him to look into Bryant and Stratton, which was a two-year business college 20 minutes from home. He had actually gotten uh, a modest college scholarship award from New York State, which was $500 a year. Hmm. So he went and saw a recruiter um, who convinced him to enroll in the computer systems analyst program. Yeah. Uh, Tim expected to just do computer programming curriculum. However, uh, they had just changed it. So new incoming students were now required to add core academic courses. So like math, English, you know. Oh, yeah. So Tim was like, what the fuck? You know, he's he's wanted to learn about computers and not take the same classes that bored him in high school. Yeah. 
Uh, he didn't last long and soon quit, saying, quote, gla- classes, not glasses, classes are too boring, and I know more than the teachers. Ooh. Yeah. Mr. Smarty Pants. He, however, later would say that a huge driving force behind him quitting was concern about his dad's finances. Uh, Bill ended up having to pay for what the scholarship didn't, which was initially $800. Yeah. And Tim didn't want to financially burden him any further. Yeah. So now that formal school was out, Tim started self-education. For some reason, he turned to the literature of the fiercely independent gun culture. Gun magazines and books from the ads in the back. Um, One of the books that he found most influential was called, quote, To Ride, Shoot Straight, and Speak the Truth. It was written by Jeff Cooper, who was former former military and a world-renowned expert on self-defense and firearms. Um, The broader message of the book is really going through life in a combat mindset, having a constant awareness of your surroundings. He said that he thought, quote, speak the truth and be an honorable man. Be a John Wayne type of guy. Don't BS people. Hmm. This is also when Tim discovered the Turner Diaries. Okay. He bought it after seeing an ad in the back of Soldier of Fortune magazine. Have you ever looked at a Soldier of Fortune magazine? No. Okay. So Never. like gun magazines are like car magazines. Yeah. It's like half naked chicks, like holding rifles. Right. Um, except this magazine. It's like very like kill everybody, love my gun. Like it's just very oh, really? serious. Yeah. Okay. So um, he felt that what was happening in the book, which I talked about earlier, um, was happening in real life and Americans were ignoring the warning signs. Right. So he started circulating the book amongst his friends, uh, asking how one would survive without a gun if chaos ever happened. Uh, to every th- to Tim, everything pointed to survivalism. People need to learn to protect themselves, not depending on the government for protection. Uh, Tim took a cue from his grandfather who would stockpile a year's worth of food just because that's what they did then. What? He would he would can vegetables yeah. and can <clears throat> drinks and stuff because <clears throat> he was from the fucking thirties yeah. and forties. Like that that's what my grandmother fucking did that. Really? Yeah. God damn, that's why we had peaches for like nineteen years. Yeah, I guess my I mean grandma. she didn't have a year's worth of food, but <clears throat> like I mean, come to think of it, I think my my grandma did that yeah. too. So I mean if Yeah. I know people that do it now. Yeah. Just because they can. I can't do that shit. No. But. No, no way. So, you know, it wasn't really. To each his own. Yeah. Um, So he found support of his survivalist beliefs at the movies. Um, Movies such as Red Dawn and Logan's Run uh, depicted humans taking a stand after an apocalyptic event. He also referenced Planet of the Apes. (laughs) (laughs) What? Which, I've never seen Planet of the Apes. But, I've seen bits and pieces. But the gist is like something happens apocalyptic comedy. wise and yeah. the apes take over, right? And the humans have to fight. I, I guess. I, I've seen a couple clips and it's just comedy to me. I don't, babe. It, it's so bad. Like, I don't. The costumes yeah. are just so bad. I, I, mm. I can't do it. So preparing for the worst did not really seem unusual to Tim. 
Um, he also decided that he wasn't going to make any money with the comics or the computer, so he started uh, investing in guns. He decided that with the guns, he could protect his home and hunt for food. Um, and some real like far-right survivalist movements actually saw guns as replacing money later mm. on down the road. Uh, in 1987, he got a job with Burke Armored Car Service in Buffalo. He would say that this was his first exposure to racism. Really? He grew up in a town where he said that seeing somebody who was not white was the equivalent of seeing an alien. Whoa. So damn. he would go to a lot of cash um, check cashing stores mm-hmm. in the inner city neighborhoods of the east side of Buffalo. Mm-hmm. I left out a lot of this because it was bad. Like, really bad. Yeah, it, it is. Um, his older co-workers spared little sympathy for the heavily minority, for the heavy minority population, and it wasn't long until Tim adopted the same thoughts. You can come to your own conclusions on that because I'm not going to repeat what I read. It's that bad. Um, eventually, Tim bought 10 acres of property just for target practice. Wow. Yeah. He was pissing off the neighbors, so he went and bought land to shoot. Not bad. Yeah. So he was restless, though, and he wanted to see more. And a family friend had previously suggested the army. And at first he gave it little thought, but in May of 1988, he decided to go the next day. <laughs> yeah. He was the next day. The next day. He told his dad, I'm joining the army. And his dad said, when? And he said, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, he was 20 years old at the time, and he went to Fort Benning, Georgia. Hmm. That's where our nephew yeah. is. He went uh, on May 30th for three months of basic training. That is there where he met 33-year-old Michigan native Terry Lynn Nichols. Terry Nichols comes in a lot. Okay. Probably more in part two. Um, after failing at many jobs and business ventures, uh, he lost his small farm and cursed the government so decided that a new start in a military pension is what he wanted. Hmm. Uh, you're anti-government. Why are you joining the fucking military? Exactly. I did not understand that. And I, I hate the government, so I'm going to work for him. I couldn't find anything that, like, explained that. It literally, everything said, like, he was pissed off at the government, so he joined the army. That makes no sense. No. No, he joined the army at 33 years old. He was in boot camp with Tim. So, what? That makes no sense. I, babe, none of this makes sense. Um, The two shared many of the same beliefs. Um, Nichols was also an ardent believer in the Second Amendment. Uh, This was Tim's first exposure also to CS gas, which, you know, Mm. they stick them in a room and you have to take off your gas mask. And um, I think, like, some places I heard you say the alphabet, other places you say your name and your social security number. Yeah. And you have to hold your breath for so long. Um, so Tim learned, though, that the secret to dealing with it was to just not panic. Like, you're stuck in there. Don't panic. You're going to get out eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but it made him think that there was no way that someone without training could handle that. Yeah. In August of 1988, he graduated basic training with the maximum test score for an infantry trainee. Wow. He was he was fucking smart. Yeah. Very smart. So in September of 1988, he went to Fort Riley, Kansas for more specialized training. Nichols also went with. Another man that they would become close with also went to Kansas from Fort Benning. 
And that was Michael Fortier, who was a recruit from Arizona, who shared many of the same beliefs, except his love for pot and meth. Yeah. Yeah. And later we find out teenage girls. Ooh. Yeah. Um, Yowzas. So Tim started reading a lot about a supposed conspiracy between the United Nations and the U.S. to limit individual freedom. Have you ever heard of this conspiracy theory? No. Okay. So the conspiracy theory in a nutshell is that the United Nations is run by Jews and they're going to take over the world. Okay. That, what? What? Sure. Which I would like to point out. Um, don't they say that Jesus Christ was Jewish? Yeah. Okay. So um, if you're following the Bible and Jesus Christ, why, why do you hate Jews? A Jew. Yeah. I don't understand that. You're following, make you're, sense. you're following a book written by a Jew. Why do you hate him? Well, Jesus didn't write the Bible. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. It was about a Jewish carpenter. Am yeah. I correct? Yeah. Okay. So, like, <clears throat> did you read, guys? Did you not Google that shit to find it mm, out? Maybe skipped over that yeah. part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whew. So, he started passing out the Turner Diaries. To everybody. And eventually was told to stop because of the racist content. Um, He was eventually named the top gunner out of 120 other people with the Bradley fighting vehicle, which was like a new war toy Mm -hmm. introduced at Fort Riley. He re-enlisted in the Army in September of 1990. And his dream was always to become a Green Beret and do special forces. Yeah. Um, the way his boot camp was, they were like breaking off into teams where you couldn't really do that. So he was finally told at this point that the army wanted him to try out for special forces. So he was scheduled to go mid November. He started training on his own and was really just busting his ass to get himself ready. Uh, however, a few weeks before he was to try out, he found out he was going to war. Ooh. His company was told to prepare for combat duty in the Persian Gulf. Yeah. He went home to, you know, bef- to get ready to go. You're right. And told the neighbor, quote, I'm coming home in a body bag. Oh, she said it was the first time she ever saw tears in his eyes. Oh. Uh, they arrived in Saudi Arabia in January of 1991. And he was actually pretty quickly promoted to sergeant while he was over there. Um, there was one general. He was he was good in the army. Yeah. There was a general that said if he had an army full of McVeighs, he would never lose a battle. Really? So, yeah. He, wow. He said he, he kind of knew, like, in basic training, like, yeah, they're yelling at you, but, like, they legally can't touch you. So yeah. just do what you got to do to get through it, you know? Yeah. Um, according to Tim, many things that the army, many things happened over there that the army was not truthful about. Mm. Um. A lot of instances of friendly fire, killing yeah. other um, soldiers yeah. that they either pretended didn't happen at all or blamed on the Iraqis. Oh, jeez. So, now that's that's his words, you know? Yeah. Oh, you want to drink of my coffee? No, no, I'm good. Are you sure? Yeah. It's a good one. Maybe saying. in a little bit. So, the, and I, I didn't know any of this. I don't know if you did. The Desert Storm Ground War began February 21st of 1991. Now, 
American soldiers were prepared to fight an enemy that was bloodthirsty fighters. Mm-hmm. However, what they found were men who did not want to be there, poorly trained, poorly equipped, and not organized. Mm. So this war that they thought was going to be very, very long, they now t- they, they call the War of 100 Hours. Yeah. Because that's how long it lasted. Right. Um, Iraqi soldiers were deserting their troops by the hundreds. They would see Americans coming and they would just surrender. Wow. Because they couldn't, they, they couldn't fight back. Yeah. We dominated them. Wow. There's no other way around it. Yeah. So now he was in the Bradley fighting vehicle and he was a gunner. So he was shooting. He, um, they were getting ready to go up to, I believe they called it a foothill and 19 football fields away, a man stood up and Tim Sargent said, shoot him. So he fucking shot him from 19 football fields away. Oh my God. Blew the entire top half of him off. Wow. The weapon he was shooting with was the equivalent of a grenade. Wow. Now there was a guy standing behind this guy. Be the guy behind the guy. He was killed from the Iraqi soldier, like exploding, essentially. Dude. The, the the bullet killed both of them. And then they make mention that that's why they tell you to stand like X amount of yards away from anybody in war. So you don't get hit with shrapnel of what's hitting that person. That's crazy. Yeah. So he ended up receiving an army accommodation medal for this. Now, there is also rumors that I could not find any like source to. Nobody talks about it. That allegedly he shot four Iraqi soldiers that were already, that had already surrendered. They were already POWs. Mm. He just went up to him and shot him. Now, he makes mention that it was not him, that he witnessed it. And allegedly his uh, commander at the time won't talk about it. Wow. So so I don't know if that actually happened. Mm. The two from 19 football fields by actually happened. Right, right. Um, He would go on to say, quote, what made me feel bad was, number one, I didn't kill them in self-defense. When I took a human life, it taught me these were human beings, even though they speak a different language and have different customs. The truth is, we all have the same dreams, the same desires, the same care for our children and our family. These These people were humans, like me, at the core. This is where wow. he flipped. <clears throat> this yeah. is this is this was the turning point event in his life, I mm. think, that flipped him. Okay. He said that he saw the Americans as the bullies of the Iraqis because they went in there knowing that they were not going to be able to fight back. Mm. And they went in there and killed them all anyways. Mm. So that's when he that's when he flipped. Yeah. Right? So in late March, he received orders to report to the Special Forces Selection and Assessment Course at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. But he wasn't ready. His time overseas had broken him down physically and emotionally. Um, and there was a few other guys that came from overseas with him. The commander took notice and offered Tim and the other men an opportunity to defer their tryout, to give them time, yeah. you know. Uh, one man yelled, quote, no way, we're fucking ready. Well, peer pressure took over 
And nobody wanted to say, nah, I'm not ready. Right. Because they didn't want to come off as weak. Mm. He withdrew after two days. Jeez. Yeah. Okay. So he was devastated. This was all that he wanted to do. Yeah. And he couldn't. So he was granted several weeks leave to go home. When he returned to Fort Riley, others could sense a change. Tim was growing disenchanted with the army. Um, and now there were rumors starting that he was a racist. There was issues at Fort Riley when he returned regarding just a few uh, African-American soldiers who he felt were disrespectful. They called the Sergeant Sarge. Uh, they wore black power shirts and they didn't listen to anybody. Yeah. So he um, he denied being racist and said, I wouldn't care what color they are. Like, they're disrespectful. They're, they're yeah. disrespecting the army and everybody yeah, in it. Right. And called multiple other African-American men his battle buddies, which is like huge, I guess, to call yeah. somebody your battle buddy. Like, you'd be my battle buddy. You're mine. So, um, Ride or die, biatch. There you go. So, Tim um, denied being a racist, uh, but signed up for a trial membership with the KKK. What? Did you know you could sign up for a trial membership? Uh, no. Do you want to know what you got with the trial membership? What? Like a free t-shirt? <laughs> yes, that says white power. Oh, my God. Swear to God. Oh. And I was going to say a free t-shirt or a bumper sticker. Well, bumper stickers come into play later. So he, he got this t-shirt that said white power and he was planning on wearing it to prove a point that, you know, the black guys wearing the black power shirts never got in trouble, but he would get in trouble for wearing the white power shirt. Right. He ended up not wearing it. He would say that um, he, he didn't renew his membership when it came up to renew. They didn't just automatically like charge his card. I don't know how that worked back then. Okay. Um, He said he joined initially because he thought they were fighting for the restoration of individual rights, especially gun rights. But the more research he did, he realized that the Klan was almost entirely devoted to racism. Didn't everybody know that? Mm, I I, I thought. I mean, they'd been burning crosses for like 50 years at this fucking point, right? He also said that he felt the KKK was not... Uh, they were, excuse me, manipulative to children. Mm. Okay. I, hmm. Sure. Yeah. So he would say his enemies were not the blacks. They were the politicians pushing for more gun laws. Uh, in May of 1991, he moved off the base. And in late 1991, he turned down an offer to become the battalion commander's gunner and said he was leaving the army altogether. Uh, at the end of 1991, he left the army, and his war experience really soured him on the whole thought of the military. Uh, the more he thought about it, the worse he felt about his killings, um, and he no longer felt comfortable serving a government that, in his opinion, pushed the values of political correctness at the expense of individual rights. Mm. Which, same. Yeah. I mean, not everything he says is stupid. That's the it's, thing. Yeah, it's not. Just like the Unabomber with his manifesto. Right. So the following 13 months were a huge disappointment and sent Tim into a deep depression. Um, he obviously had PTSD. He did at some point make an attempt to try and get help, but he signed up anonymously for help and they wouldn't treat him if he didn't give his name. 
What? Isn't it crazy? How fucked up is that? Like you went to war and they won't treat you because you, you can't go under John fucking Doe? Dude, that's fucked up. Like he he made an attempt, you know? Yeah. He didn't put his name down because he said he didn't want to jeopardize super, you know, other jobs because he was yeah. already having a hard time finding a job. Yeah, right. He didn't realize that being in the military was not the same as having a fucking degree. He thought he would come back and get a job immediately. Right. So he, the only job he could find was for a security company. Uh, he became a security guard for Burns Security. And he ended up re-enlisting in the reserves because it paid him $150 a month. So not only is he not where he wants to be, he's not moving forward at all. Right. Um, he was working the night shift at Buffalo Zoo. Hmm. Which I wouldn't mind. Yeah. You could play with the animals. That'd be cool. Uh, this is when he started writing letters to the local paper and congressman, though. Okay. I mean, it's the 90s. What else did you do? Sure. So, um, he wrote about everything from issues with the government and leaders to crime, taxes, and racism. Uh, the Lockport Union Sun and Journal actually published his letter on February 11th, 1992. And he wrote, quote, taxes are a joke. More taxes are always the answer to the government mismanagement. Is a civil war imminent? Do we have to shed blood to reform the current system? So, uh, three months after his army discharge, Tim had a sort of a breakdown. He had a dead-end job, he had no girlfriend, and he didn't really feel like he had a home. Yeah. He ended up running out of his dad's house in just a pair of sweatpants and ran to his grandfather's house. Um, he considered suicide, but knew that it would just destroy his grandfather. So he decided that... <laughs> Gambling would be a good idea. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. He started making very large bets on the Buffalo Bills and other sports teams. Now, are you ready for my football knowledge? Yeah. Right around this time, I believe it was 90, uh, the Bills went to the Super Bowl four years in a row mm -hmm. and lost four years in a row. Yeah. So he lost quite a bit of money. Mm -hmm. They lost to the Giants, the Redskins, and Dallas twice. Sure. You're not impressed by that? Uh, I'm very impressed because I'm trying to you. think. And yeah, that's good. And you know who did the coin toss? Who? OJ. Did he really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's all I got on that. Um, the second letter was published on March 10th of 1992, which was my grandmother's birthday. Um, he defended the right to hunt for sustenance but complained angrily at the inhumane conditions endured by animals raised in captivity for slaughter. Hmm. What the fuck are you talking about? Right. So he wrote another letter pissed off that um, a woman had gotten arrested for carrying mace and using mace. So he wrote a letter. He's like, well, how the fuck are we supposed to protect ourselves? Like, yeah. you're not protecting us. Right. Um, at one point, he told friends that the army implanted a microchip in his buttocks so the government could keep track of him. In my buttocks. In my buttocks. Um, I, um, a little butt play. Yeah. So he started talking to Jennifer about the anti-government shit. Um, she didn't really buy any of it, but it got her thinking about the government and individual yeah, rights. And this right. is what she would use to later defend him. Right. Um, so he got like way more super pissed off when he was notified, um, that the army overpaid him by $1,058 and he was going to have to pay it back. Oh, I'd be pissed too. I would too. 
Fuck you. Fuck you. It's your mistake. <laughs> right. I'm keeping like, it. You're a dick. Yeah. So. I'd be pissed too. I, yeah. I don't know. All right. So then Ruby Ridge happened. Mm. A quick, quick synopsis of yeah. Ruby Ridge. Randy Weaver was essentially set up for an arrest to become an informant. Um, they wanted the, uh, the FBI and the ATF wanted him to be an informant for the Aryan Nation Brotherhood. They um, basically coerced him into making a sawed-off shotgun that was just below the legal limit mm -hmm. and then arrested him for it. Then they told him, we'll forget about it if you become an informant. Yeah. And he went, well, fuck you. On August 21st, 1992, federal agents attempted to raid his remote cabin. Um, this uh, almost immediately uh, ended up in the death of his son and a U.S. Marshal. Yeah. Um, his wife, Vicky, was also shot by a sniper unprovoked. She was standing at the front door holding her baby. Uh, the sniper would later say that he was shooting at family friend Kevin Harris because he thought that Kevin Harris had fired on him first. If I'm not mistaken, this uh, ATF agent was tried for manslaughter. Oh, really? I could be wrong. I will double check. But Yeah, if you could. So it turned into an 11-day standoff before we were sur surrendered. But one of the biggest issues was this sniper, allegedly, they didn't realize that Vicky was dead. So they kept telling him, let your wife out. Let your wife out. Surrender your wife. Let her be safe. And he's like, you guys are dicks. You fucking killed her. And now yeah. you're telling me to let her out of the house. Yeah. So they kind of like wake up with like the noises and stuff. So yeah. um, this became a rally cry for militia groups and survivalist groups um, and really a wake up call for millions of Americans. Um, there was a growing concern about the overzealousness of law enforcement and um, excessive force. So, I mean, this became a huge deal because they fucked up. Yeah. They they did. And they, they admitted it later on, kind of, in an ass-backwards uh, yeah, kind of way. kind of. Um, it reinforced the belief, though, for Tim, that America was becoming an overtaxed police state. Um, he was becoming so vocal and outrageous with his views that a co-worker started taping him in, case he, in case he made any, like, credible threats. Really? Yeah. So, wow. um, like this is where he, this was, this was it. So, um, in late 90, 1992, Terry Nichols and his, uh, brand new Filipino mail order bride. Nice. Yeah. Made a trip to visit Tim. Um, two weeks. Oh yeah. Okay. So right around this time, about two weeks later, um, he learned of Waco. Yeah. So we obviously I did Waco, you know, mm. um, I have my own thoughts on it. So a quick synopsis of Waco uh, on February 28th, 1993, federal agents raided Mount Carmel uh, based off of weapons violations that right. they thought they had. They thought they were uh, manufacturing weapons yeah. when in reality they owned a gun store and they were doing it properly. Yeah. Um, so Tim was like, I, ha I have to go. I have to go defend them. He was living in Florida at the time because he was looking for a tax-free state. Florida has a lot of stipulations, like with taxes and like Do payment. They really? Yeah, like um, 
Do you remember OJ moved to Florida? Yeah. Because they couldn't take his house and shit to pay oh, for yeah. the lawsuit. Yeah. So that's why he moved to Florida. Makes sense. Useless fucking knowledge. That's yeah. So he loaded up his car with anti-government pamphlets, bumper stickers. Bumper stickers. And t-shirts and headed yeah. to Waco. Um, he wanted, he tried to go down the, the, the road because, you know, there were people out there protesting and the military guy there was like, fuck you, dude. Go. You're not. And then Tim noted that he turned his back and they all went to stand in a circle. And his first thought was, I could take every one of them out right now because none of them are paying attention. Yeah. So he ended up giving an interview to a Southern Baptist University um, reporter. And he said, quote, it seems the ATF just wants a chance to play with their toys. The government is afraid of the guns people have because they have to have control of the people at all times. Once you take away the guns, you can do anything to the people. I believe we are slowly turning into a socialist government, and the government is continuously growing bigger and more powerful, and the people need to prepare to defend themselves against governmental control. Mm. Yeah. So some of the stuff he was selling, (laughs) um, well, this was later on. So um, another person who was at the Waco protest was Louis Beam. Okay. The KKK guy. Yeah. Who wrote the letter. Uh, it's unknown if they spoke, but they were definitely there at the same time. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Tim would go on to say that ATF agents were merely pawns acting under government orders. And the government, the government needed to spend tax dollars on something, and they saw Waco as their opportunity. Uh, however, in the process, the government broke constitutional laws. Uh, America's armed forces are not to be used against civilians, yeah. which is truth. Yep. The United States Armed Forces was 100% part of Waco, uh, including the Texas and Alabama National Guard. Yep. So they, they fucked up. Oh, yeah. Um, Big time. He left Waco after a couple days and decided he wasn't going to go back to Florida. Over the next 26 months, McVeigh would end up in over 40 states. On the gun show circuit. Wow. Yeah. Um, so he thought about the gun shows he attended while in the army and deci- decided to start hitting all the gun shows. So he would travel from show to show selling books such as the Turner Diaries uh, and survival items. Hmm. Other stuff he would sell was uh, ATF hats with bullet holes, <laughs> a Waco propaganda video. And wow. he was handing out business cards with the ATF sniper who killed Vicki Weaver, his home address. Wow. Yeah. So, what the fuck? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what did him in. Yeah. Um, so he met people who shared the same preoccupation with the Second Amendment and the federal government's effort to crack down on gun ownership. The further west he went, the more he noticed that people had less respect for the government. Uh, all in all, he would go to 80 gun shows. Sorry, he barks at air. And he laid down next to me and then grunted at me when I yelled at him. Like a fucking kid. Right. Um, so along the way, he ended up going to Kingman, Arizona, where Michael Fortier was living with his teenage girlfriend who was still in high school. Mm, yeah. All right. Now, I don't know how old Michael Fortier was. I was not. Yeah. I didn't look it up because at this point, he's been in the army. 
for a couple years and your girlfriend's in high school. So she was probably like in elementary school when you were in the army. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So um, they still shared a lot of the same beliefs. Um, And Fortier flew an American flag and a snake flag. Now, don't don't tread tread on me. me. I looked it up. Do you know where the flag originated from? No. I'm about to school you. You ready? Oh, hit me with it. Now, and I'm willing to bet, and don't come at me for this, I'm willing to bet that half the people that fly that flag and wear those grunt t-shirts don't have a fucking clue where this came from. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably We know who I'm talking about. Yes. Right. Okay, so the symbolism of the rattlesnake started in 1754 when Ben Franklin drew a political cartoon with a rattlesnake and the words, quote, join or die. This was in response to Britain sending over all their felons to the colonies. So if you committed a crime in Britain, you were exiled to what is now America. Wow. Yeah. So by 1775, the rattlesnake symbol was soon embraced in the colonies as a symbol of unity, freedom, and liberty. It started appearing in newspapers, on banners and flags, on clothing, and even money. The characteristics of a rattlesnake resonated with the colonists. A rattlesnake would not attack unless provoked, but if provoked, it would fight to the death. Then they would tell King George, quote, don't tread on these American colonies because he was sending the the felons over to fuck up their colonies. Uh, Don't tread on the colonies. Yeah. Now, in 1775, now they, they do say that there's a guy, John Paul Jones, who raised this as the first American flag. Mm-hmm. It wasn't him, though. Um, in 1775, Colonel Christopher Gadsden from South Carolina took the symbol of independence and freedom, put it on a flag, and flew it over all of the continental naval ships. Wow. That's where it came from. That's why it's called the Gadsden flag, because it was the guy who raised it. So it was actually like back then during like the the Revolutionary War and all that shit. It was like the flag. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So now it makes total sense. It does. Because I would look at the flag and I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? Right. What What does that mean? But yeah, I, I never knew what it meant. Now it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it does. See? I was yeah. very um interested to read that. So um, back to 48. Uh, They became so close that Tim was actually the best man at the 1994 wedding. Uh, Fortier introduced Tim to pot and meth. Tim decided to whip out an encyclopedia and do some research before trying it. Okay. Yeah. What? What? So he said he liked how meth energized him and his brain, but he didn't like the cost or the side effects. Duh. Well, then don't. Try it. Yeah. So, in April of 1993, Tim headed to Tulsa, Oklahoma for the Wanamaker's World's Largest Gun and Knife Show. So, he went there at the suggestion of a Florida gun dealer by the name of Robert Moore, who he had met at a previous gun show. Uh, According to rumors going around the circuit, it was only a matter of time before the United Nations and the New World Order would put their plan into action. So the Jews are coming, apparently. Yeah. Uh, the hardcore members also said that what the average citizen might consider an excessive amount of guns that they found reasonable. 
And they explain this away by comparing it to how many screwdrivers you own. What? Think about it. We don't fix anything. We, yeah. we have 17 motherfucking screwdrivers. <laughs> we don't fix anything. That's true. So that's what they compared it to. Wow. Do you need 17 screwdrivers? No. No. So. But we have them. But we have them. Um, so he ended up meeting up with Moore and uh, went back to Moore's Arkansas ranch where he traded his white power t-shirt for two 52 foot lengths of fuse, a Canadian smoke grenade and some flares. That's a good trade. That's a good trade. Man. In mid April, uh, Tim went to the Nichols farm in Michigan. Terry lived at the family farm with his brother, James. Now, um, after he got a hardship discharge in 1989, Terry went back and him and James uh, renounced their citizenship and became sovereign citizens, which means they rejected the law of the land and of the government. Um, They said that the (laughs) the government lacked the power to, now they're very specific in this, uh, the government lacked the power to issue driver's license, mandate child support. (laughs) Or take ac- action against unpaid bank loans. Mm-hmm. This was because Terry owed like a butt ton of money in child support. And he owed Chase Bank $20,000 and tried to pay them back with a paper that says, hi, you're paid. I I would hate always coming in contact with sovereign citizens because <laughs> if they were driving, well, I'm not driving. I'm traveling on yep. land. Yep. Like, dude, shut the fuck up. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's how they were. Um, Tim said he went to the farm to expand his survival skills and he wanted to learn uh, farming, basically. James was super good at mechanics, so he learned a lot about that. And he respected that Terry didn't wait for a girlfriend to come to him, but instead he went to her. In 1990, he went over to the Philippines and married his 17-year-old now wife. Oh, jeez. Now he went back to America and left her there so he could prepare. Uh, she ended up getting knocked up by another dude. Whoops. And uh, came back, well, came to the U.S. September 21st of 1991, bringing uh, other dude's kid with her. All right. Yeah. So now Tim was an outsider in Decker, and it's rumored that he actually had an affair with the mail order bride. Mm. Because she was also an outsider. hey Um. This is when he was, uh, so he... He tried to fit in by telling more stories and just drinking a butt ton with the old guys he was telling the stories to. Yeah. Uh, He liked Jack and Coke. And when he wanted to be healthy, he would drink vodka and orange juice. Good job. I see your your plan there. Yeah. This is also when he was first exposed to explosives. There were workers on the Nichols farm that were experimenting with small homemade bombs. They were combining household chemicals and plastic jugs and finding different ways to detonate them. Okay, so now Waco is still happening and Tim and Terry decide that they need to go back to Waco. Yeah. Um, Tim says he's not sure what he's going to do there, but he has an overwhelming urge to go. Mm -hmm. They were scheduled to leave on April 20th. The morning of April 19th, Tim was fixing his car up so they could make the drive when Terry yelled at him to come into the house yelling, it's on fire. He stood and watched the TV for hours with Waco burning. So this was, this was it, I think. This yeah. was his turning point. Um, he saw this as a government takeover and 
that's it. So that is where I'm going to end part one. Ooh. Mm -mm -mm. All right. Yeah. It's getting juicy. Yep. It is. Mm. I told you there was so much more. Yeah, I don't know what to think about it right now. I know. It's fucked up. There's just, there's a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. There's a shit ton. But part two, we'll get into the whole, it was more than one person, they think, and... That's crazy, Mm because I I don't know anything about that. So just a little hint. They, you know, obviously everybody thought it was just Timothy McVeigh. Um, There were documents sealed until just recently uh, of testimony of people describing a second man with him. Really? The morning of. Really? There was a second man with him. um, When was that unsealed? I have to look. It was a couple years ago. But okay. it, it was sealed for a long time. Yeah. There was only one person um, whose testimony was public about there being a second man. Um, and then everybody else's was sealed until recently. Really? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's Ooh, testimony that. Yeah, that there was a person with him when he rented the rider truck. And that when he was seen walking away from the truck the morning of, mm-hmm. there was a man walking with him. Oh, I can't wait to hear that. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's going to be good. Yep. Ooh, well, good job, babe. You you did some digging. I did. I went down a fucking rabbit hole. Man. Damn, you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What a rabbit hole. I Holy know. shit. I know. And like, you could go into 17 different rabbit holes just from the fucking groups at the beginning. The CSA, the Order. The Order was a group that was created, you know, by yeah. it's like 15 dudes that did like 22 bank robberies and they became the order because of the Turner Diaries. And you had no clue when None. I told you to look this case I up. I didn't have, no, no. I didn't either. No. I just figured, I haven't heard much about it. Why don't we do something about it? Yeah. And wow. Here we go. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. All right. It's, well. uh, there's so much. There, there's just so much. Well, this was good, and you guys will not have to wait too long. No, We're Thursday. We're going to do it tomorrow or Thursday. Yeah, so. for sure. Wow. Yeah. Good job, babe. Thanks. All Thanks. right, guys. Well, um, hit us up on social media. We love getting responses from you guys. We try to re- respond back as soon as we can. Um, I love getting messages from you guys. I'm always on social media. So um, whatever platform you listen to us on, hit us with that five-star liking. Please. And Patreons, thank you. Everyone else, thank you. We love you guys. Yes. You are our family. Yes. And we will be talking to you guys soon. Bye. Bye. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.